because it was a black thing and it, it was a meaningful thing. You know, everybody couldn't do the dap. You know, I mean, white people didn't do the dap. You know, black people had their own thing. They had the dap. So I've got some questions for us to kind of guide sure. the conversation. Yes, please do. And listen, this is going to be the one night that you follow my directions, okay? This one time. Be, this is going to be the one I'm cashing in. It'll never happen again, so please get it. I know. Make do it tonight. I know. So we have it on record. You're listening to The Dap Project. I'm your co-host, Martha Elizabeth. And I'm your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. The Dap Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through Dap, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. We have conversations with Black men from all walks of life and ask them about one unifying element about being Black men, Dap. Who taught you? Was it the cool-ass uncle? What does it mean for you to give or receive a Dap? As Aaron likes to say, these are real Black man issues. Of course, DAP is really an entree to have deeper conversations about identity, politics, love, and power. And this is what we do here at The DAP Project. In this week's episode, The DAP Project season finale, we talk with two of Rhonda's older brothers, Andre Robinson Jr. and Daryl Robinson. Not to confuse you, but Rhonda calls Andre by his family name, Robbie. Robbie and Daryl are the oldest of our family children, and they are known as storytellers. However, this was the first time I had the opportunity to really listen closely about their childhood and how they thought about being Black men through the lens of death. But before we get into the conversation, let's chat for a minute about this past year and the new year ahead. So we're dropping this episode in the first week of the new year, 2021. What are a few things you're leaving in 2020? And what are you bringing into 2021? Hmm, that's a good question. Okay, leaving in 2020, what I hope to be leaving in 2020. Well, I threw it out, so yes, it's gone. So practically speaking, I'm decluttering. I still have case studies from grad school, despite zero intention or time of reading them. And those cases are now on the internet, so I don't need the paper copy. What am I doing? Since I'm spending 270,000 hours a week in the same room, I need to refresh the energy, and that does not include old graduate school case studies. Also trying to leave in 2020, and keep me honest here, that little voice that says things aren't going to work out. Why does doubt have such a strong grip? I don't understand. Where is the roach spray for doubt? Anyway, so taking with me into 2021, I have a few things on my list. Developed a few good habits then relationships that emerged in quarantine. Something good came out of this. I've been regularly hiking, running, biking in Rock Creek Park all over my Instagram. My bike's name is Blue, gender neutral, completely amazing. I'm bringing with me into 2021 some girlfriends. Shout out to Team Glaze. We exercise remotely together. My bestie and I have returned to a childhood habit of talking at least a couple times a week. Shout out to my bestie. She knows who she is. Now, she's a night owl. I am not. So it is really an act of God and a blessing that we cackle together most nights for like an hour or so about the latest uh, Twitter tweet that we saw or 
something ridiculous on social media. We have good times. And then lastly, definitely coming with me into 2021 is my restored love for reading. You know this, Aaron, because I text you about books that we need to read as a pot. And then um, these books really challenge ways that I think I've thought about um, critical issues. So I'm bringing with me this newfound curiosity about dominant cultural supremacy, small-mindedness, etc. I'm documenting my reading on Instagram at Ruby Reads Chocolate City. If folks are interested, why don't you join me there? So after all that, what are you tossing and keeping, A.A. Ron? Yeah, I've never really been good with uh, resolutions, um, but just thinking about it, being the year 2021 is crazy to me. I distinctly remember being on the school playground in the 80s, talking to my buddies about what the year 2000 would be like, probably after watching Back to the Future or something like that. 20 years have passed since the millennium began, and life kind of keeps the same motto. Same shit, different day. Albeit blessed and somewhat privileged shit on my part. I plan to keep working smart to stay in good health, keep striving to stay economically empowered, keep good and positive energy around me so my vibe continues to be right when I show up as a husband, a father, a friend, all that good shit. It's hard to say that I will toss anything besides my disdain for the person occupying the White House. I can't wait for Biden and Harris to take over, but I accept that all that was in 2020 kind of contributes to the foundation of who I am today. You know, I got to get kind of deep sometime, Rhonda. Mm-hmm. I'm keeping all of that and standing firmly, 10 toes down, ready to thrive in this new year, ready to work with all challenges, obstacles, wins, and blessings that come my way. We got to keep on pushing, and that's all I plan to do. Doing that for my ancestors, my family, my people as best I can. But to fairly answer your question, or maybe not so fairly, my dope, that project co host. I suppose I shall toss anything that even pretends to prevent my resolution for 2021. Because I wish a motherfucker would. Oh, come for Aaron's resolutions. (laughs) That was also a non-answer, but thank you. (laughs) Happy New Year, folks. You're listening to The Dat Project. I'm your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth. And I'm your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. So throughout our interviews on The Dat Project, we have heard from friends of ours in Generation X, younger dudes in Gen Z, millennials, zennials, about how they learned and used Dat. These conversations have been fascinating and informative and left us really wanting to hear from guys from the era that birthed at the 60s. In one decade, the president was elected and assassinated. A diverse coalition of dynamic young Black American leaders, including feminists and same gender loving, all rallied a quarter of a million Americans to march for jobs and justice. Tragically, leaders from the Christian and Islamic faith rose up and were shot down across the globe raged the Vietnam War. It's been more than a few years for some of us since studying world history. So here's a brief refresher on the Vietnam War. 
The war began in 1955 and continued for a decade before the United States entered in 1965. It was the first conflict where black and white soldiers were fully integrated 17 years after President Truman issued executive order 9981, which desegregated the military. An estimated 300,000 black men served in the Vietnam War. However, the written order to integrate did not eliminate racial hostility or discrimination against black servicemen. Gerald F. Goodwin describes in a New York Times op-ed from 2017 entitled Blacks and Whites in Vietnam, that black men were disproportionately given the dirtiest and most menial task, disproportionately punished and awarded fewer promotions. When reports of Dr. King's assassination reached Vietnam, Goodwin writes that there were reports of Confederate flags hung outside of barracks and at least three cross burnings. After King's assassination, racial incidents on some U.S. military installations were a daily occurrence. Black servicemen refused to concede to racism in the military. The Black Power salute that conveyed strength, confidence, and love was banned in Vietnam, and Depp was born. For much of their childhood, our guests, Robbie and Daryl, were shielded from this tumult, growing up in a relatively quiet neighborhood in Northwest DC, learning life's lessons from their parents, namely their dad. The black man cool they would learn from a cousin who lived across town and from Richard Roundtree and Melvin Van Peebles on the big screen. This is the DC and these are the times that influenced the men Daryl and Robbie became. One of Daryl's earliest memories about growing up in DC and learning lessons from his dad involved a house on 15th and Constitution Avenue and their boxer, a dog named Chris. Leaving that neighborhood, and I think specifically after someone stole our dog, stole Chris, our boxer, from <laughs> the Constitution Avenue mm -hmm. um, location, and then my father contacting the police, and then we find out they ended up in Northwest at a, um, I think it was a, a veterinarian hospital, wasn't it, Robbie? Where they were trying to breed the dog? I don't know where it was exactly, yeah. but I just remembered yeah. it was right in the same neighborhood that we eventually moved to. Do you remember right. that? It was, it was on, it was on uh, Georgia Avenue. And I was there because I was in the back of the, of the car. Right. And I remember the police coming up to Dad and saying, we got the guy. And they smashed his face against the, the metal grate that protected the glass on the, on the hospital. And they said to him, we're going to press charges now. And Dad said, let him go. And the police officers were disgusted. They were disgusted. Like, we got him now. Let's, let's, like, let's beat him to death. You know, that's the way they were acting. Like, mm -hmm. they, you know, they were really rough with this guy. My father said, let him go. And I was in the car going, Dad, you know, man from uncle him, chop him or something, you know, kick mm -hmm. him, beat him. Then he got in the car and I asked him, I said, Dad, why did you let them go? And he said, he looked irritated in a way. Then he calmed down. He said, Today they took Chris. I send them to jail, and when they get out, they come and get you. You know, I um, <laughs> Yes, I can see that's very dramatic. He scared the crap out of me. I'm going, they'll come get me. What did I do? So, so I, how old were you when you um? They're kidnapping children out here. I think I was. I think I was. I think I was seven. So you or were pretty eight, young when you guys moved over here to. Uh, oh to yes, Dad never let a lesson get by. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course. He not. really never let a lesson of any kind get by, and that and stay with me for years. And I told every friend I had about uh, his compassion. Let's
let's go down this rabbit hole for a minute. There are childhood experiences that leave an indelible mark on us and shape the adult we later become. Clearly, this situation with the dog was one for Daryl. Was it dad's intention to teach Daryl a lesson? One afternoon, I asked our dad to reflect on that moment. Is that the way that it went down, according to your memory? Um, through the filter of time, I would say that it was slightly different, but mostly correct. But you have to remember, he's remembering this from his age, and I'm remembering it from my adult self. And so um, it wasn't quite that way, but was close in my in my telling. The story is that the guy was released because I didn't want to press any charges because we had the dog back at that time. And there were three policemen who responded who were very sympathetic to us because they didn't like dog thieves at all. And uh, when they uh, kind of jacked him up, uh, he, he quickly broke down and, 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 and said where the dog was. We went, retrieved her, came home, and um, after uh, uh, Daryl's disappointment for not, uh, um, as he said, chopping the guy, um, life just returned to normal. Did you intend to teach him a lesson about compassion? And, well, I was just going on my normal uh, process of thinking things out. I wasn't really trying to teach him anything, but I knew that everything I did, they watched me, my children, uh, and they forgot nothing. If, they, if I made a mistake, they didn't forget that. But if I did something that they approved of, that was fine. Lewis Rabot Junior High School opened in 1966 as the DC Public School for Kids in Manor Park, the boys' new neighborhood. Today, it's a public charter school. Both boys had attended a nearby Catholic school up the road on Georgia Avenue, but Daryl transferred to the new public school while Robbie remained in the square world, let him tell it, of Catholic school. In public school, Daryl learned a few lessons right quick. Unlike at his Catholic school at DCPS, neckties were optional. And unless you befriended the school bully, payoffs were mandatory. Then there were the neighborhood gangs to steer clear of. This was a confusing and critical time and they learned to define and defend themselves as young black men. We begin every interview with one question. Where did you first learn DAP? So I was in more of a square lane than Daryl was because he left the square world of Catholic school and went to be with his friends who lived in the neighborhood. So I would say probably he was probably the earlier experience with, you know, that street culture of that comes from, you know, the neighborhood culture, if you will, or the the, uh, the communal culture that DAP grows out of. Because it's really a recognition strategy, right? It's mm -hmm. a, I see you, you know, we're in this together and we have something that nobody else has. You know, that wasn't a thing in Catholic school that much. So Daryl probably has more to, to talk about that in terms of what was going on at Rabot 
Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Darrell, when did you go there? Seventh grade? It started in seventh grade when it was a brand new school. It was the first brand year of its opening. And I was in seventh grade. And then mom happened to work in the office, which really made it colorful. 1969. What's interesting about what Robbie said is I, I had my own culture shock leaving Nativity because I went to school the first day with a jacket and tie on. And I was put in the classroom with every thug that existed in the school. <laughs> and, and, and why they got to be thugs? Why well, they no, be I'm thugs? saying they were thugs. They were legitimately thugs. They <laughs> were the ones that Ron, were targeted, okay. labeled, thugs. and feared by the rest of the school. The first day they called me bow tie boy because of the tie. They, they, they slammed my tie in the locker. After they got it off your neck, I presume. Well, no, no. They put it, they locked it in when it was on the, my neck. On your neck. <laughs> Yeah. Was it indeed and a bow tie was, or was it a regular tie? Right. And, no, it was a regular tie, but I was, okay, that, okay. the bow tie boy was funnier. Gotcha. Yeah, and so. I was rescued by the thug Hawk, was the, mo was the meanest guy at Rabo, And he's mm -hmm. the one that pulled the tie out of the locker and said something like, yeah, I, it was like one word, one syllable. <laughs> but then I did his homework for him in the morning in, in homeroom. And he became mm -hmm. my, he became my Luca Brogsdale. Nice. So I never had any trouble after uh, he defended me once in the gym where basketball, I shot a ball and a ball bounced off of, I remember the guy's name, Daryl Green. I mean, not the football player, of course, but right. another guy. And he came over and caved my chest in Ooh. because the women's locker was open. The women's half of the recording indoors that separated the gym were open and he was embarrassed. Mm. And then here comes Hawk out of the stands. All I know is the guy ended up like 20 feet away with his head upside down in the in the bleachers. And he said, don't mess with die ever or whatever. Die. Well, that became my D-A-H. Yeah. Became my nickname. And I stood behind him just like any any movie or play. I said, you know, yeah, you watch yourself with me, Buster. You know, whatever I said at the time. But, uh, yeah, Robbie's right. It was uh, the first thing that happens in those schools is they teach you who's boss and, you know, the hierarchy of the powerful. But did the hawk then get a dap from you? Yeah, yes. There was a, there were gestures that people made all the time that were street-like, like Robbie said. And did you eventually and, uh, pick them up while you were right. there? Yes. Yeah, you pick you picked them up. Yeah, but no, it's okay. No, I'm saying there were there were significant ways to greet people in those days. You know, significant. <laughs> there were there were there were gangs in those days. I don't know if you remember that, Robbie. There was oh, the yeah. Marlboro 500 and 250. The saints oh, yeah. and the warlords from from Paul Junior High. Uh, Paul Is was a right? dangerous school compared to Rabot. Jeez Louise, right. We had to navigate that we, like a gauntlet. They let us out early to get yeah. past Paul Junior High School so we wow. could get exactly. home before they let out. Who who prayed on us, us like, minutes early. you know, like uh, hyenas. They would kind of wait for us around one of those little parks over there that now where the police station <laughs> all is, the remember? way home anybody who had any lunch money yeah. left it was gone <laughs> right Man. so we all carried little sticks we we, we said we were going to brain somebody with but you know we were basically had no defense training so at Rabot it was a it was a completely clean facility with a brand new I would say creative principal who was Dr. Graves who believed in school song and hugging and, and social things. He was really a brilliant guy. And he kept the peace in that school. I don't think there were, I don't, I don't remember three fights, but the, the criminals that I spoke of, they were all in my homeroom under Mr. Wingate. 
circled the schoolyard at lunchtime to collect money. They were the enforcers. They were the collectors for the mob. And you had a couple of chances, a couple of seconds <laughs> in junior high on the basketball court where people would line up on the wall. They would walk down the wall and say, you know, hold their hand out. So if you didn't give them what they wanted, you right. got smashed. And I remember Jerome Rollins telling Hawk one day, I gave you a dollar. That's all you're going to get. Or something like that. Did he sound like that? And then, yeah. And then his mouth <laughs> exploded in blood, you know, because he got hit mm. in, the, in the braces. And that was, and that, that's all you needed was to punish one person and everybody Everybody held their hands out, you know, here you go. I have extra $5 for you, whatever. But I watched that and as brutal as he was, he was gentle with me in the, in the room. So So the the DAP between you and Hawk, well, I mean, today and and most of the folks we've talked to, DAP is just a simple clasp of the hand, maybe with a quick hug, but, but what was the DAP? between you and Hulk back in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s? Then it was the, then it was the pound on top and bottom right. fist. Okay. That was a simple one. It got really complicated later. Do you remember when the hands yeah. moved all around and went to the elbows? But then yeah. you didn't really shake hands. No one shook you hands. Are. You just did the up and down. And that may have come from, that may have come from, I think Shaft came out in 1970, and Shaft was the biggest movie to us at the time. It was a black star in the movie yeah. and a black guy yeah. that ran things mm-hmm. so i think around you know he, he you know he had a couple of you know satan like you know sucker or whatever you know whatever that was t- made him tough but at the same time he was he was smart and ran his own business mm-hmm. so people sort of people sort of went around uh with their own personality to seem smart and tough at least the smarter people did that you didn't want to just be a thug because the girls don't really like thugs but they Everybody respects them. That's the thing. So, as my co-host might say, these are real black man issues. How to appear tough, but not too tough. Because you don't want to offend the person you're trying to impress. In this case, the ladies. Dealing with the neighborhood bullies, especially if they're little on the small side, not exactly inclined to fight, as Robbie wasn't where dad taught the boys how to be responsible, have good character, and keep their cool when their dog got stolen. They needed someone to teach them how to be cool, how to stop getting hemmed up in school hallways, how to understand man code. Because while watching Shaft was a start, Richard Roundtree on the big screen was no substitute for a real life coach. At the DAP project, we call this guy the cool ass uncle. The one who knows how things be banging, so to speak. Despite having more than a few uncle options, it was actually a cool-ass cousin who made these squares smooth. Enter Ricardo. Ricardo came to us and schooled us and hugged us and said, right. don't do this. Don't sure. go out at night. Don't, I mean, they had lessons. Sure. Mm-hmm. They had life yeah, Ricardo, Ricardo was particularly one for me because he worked at the building next to my school. And I once did have a problem that he helped me to solve because this uh, big football player threw a full can of soda at my head one day because I was talking too loud or doing whatever for him. I would see him at lunchtime. He was like, he still has a very white baritone, right? 
do I need to come over to that motherfucker? Because if I have to come over to that motherfucker, we're going to deal with some motherfuckers. So, so some motherfuckers. So let me know if I need to come over there. Yeah, he just walked over to the to the playground one day, you know, spotted me. And, and Ricardo's really tall. And so I think mm-hmm. this guy, Dan Slattery, I think was his name. I hope he's still out there and I hope he's choking on it. You know, saw me with Ricardo. I never had another problem with him again after that. My name is Ricardo Featherstone. I was born in Washington, D.C. Came from a kind of large family. It wasn't large at the time I was born. It was I was the third in the family. Uh, I have an older brother, older sister, and um, we lived over on uh, in Northeast on Eighth Street, which is uh, one block. Uh, is the very uh, block over from uh, Gallaudet College, uh, right across the street uh, from. Florida Avenue. I was born in uh, an apartment unit. All my brothers and sisters, except my oldest brother, we were born right in that uh, apartment. It was a three-unit apartment. My uncle owned the building. He he lived next door, and my cousin, uh, my cousins lived next door. Except my oldest brother, he was born in the hospital. He was the only one born in the hospital. We always tell my oldest brother. I always tell my oldest brother he was born in the hospital. We don't know that he was really our brother. You know, <laughs> we know we know that we're we who we are but anyway <laughs> <laughs> anyway six of us we were our own friends especially when it uh rained when it rained snow weather bad we didn't have to worry about going outside and finding friends we were our own friends so we we played with each other uh, except my older sister didn't like us, you know, um, the, the boys, it was four boys, two girls, <laughs> my older sister, and then it was my younger sister. And so it, she she just didn't care much for us because we, we gave her hell uh, all the time, the boys, and she stayed away from us. Um, but anyway, so we, we moved around a lot. And when I, when I got older, Robbie and Daryl, um, were with some cousins of mine who I always like to go over to my aunt uh, June and Uncle Andre's house all the time. I like to get away from my brothers and sisters sometimes too. You know, you got brothers and sisters, you, they're family, you love them, you get into all kinds of fights and everything, but you just sometimes you, you want some freedom, you want to get away. My getaway was one of the places was to go over with my cousins. I was a little older than them, so my way to get there was I got to go over either to babysit these guys or or just go over there. Sometimes I just got to go over there. I always loved going over there. They, these they, these guys were great, man. They was <laughs> they was my. I always thought of them was like my my rich cousins. You know, they had a nice big house and and their mother and father. You know, they had really good jobs and and man, I love to be over there. You know, you know, it was always it's it was just nice, you know, to be able to do that. This was during the time of the Vietnam War when I got out of high school. When I finally got out of high school, I was still in Southeast. Daryl and, and Robbie, I guess they were picking up some things from me while I was in living out there in Southeast. Now, I'm going to tell you the thing about Southeast. When I moved from South to Southeast, I was a little bit scared of moving to Southeast because you hear things about Southeast, you know, and so it was like one of those places where everybody's like, oh, Southeast, Southeast, it's bad, it's terrible, you know, you, you, you better watch out you go out there. Well, 
once I got to Southeast, you know, I found out Southeast wasn't as bad as they say it was, although certain areas. A quick side note about Southeast by someone who doesn't live there, but did work in Anacostia for a couple of years. That's me. Honestly, to respect the complexity and the beauty of the quadrant, Southeast really deserves its own dedicated podcast by someone born and raised there. In DC, born and raised, it's really important credibility. But I'll offer just a few thoughts for the purpose of this episode. East of the river, meaning east of the Anacostia River, you'll find historic neighborhoods like Anacostia, former home to the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, and the neighborhood Hillcrest, current home to generations of Black professionals. There are housing communities in Southeast where families are making a way despite entrenched public health crises and volatile underground economics. The joy and the struggle incubated culture, art, and politics like legendary go-go bands and politicians. Now, there's significant redevelopment underway with the construction of St. Elizabeth East and the demolition of Berry Farms housing. For the purposes of this story, it's important to know that the Southeast Ricardo experience was much more colorful than the suburban-like neighborhood of Daryl's Northwest. Because Northwest surely ain't perfect either. Please say that again for the people in the back. Because Northwest surely ain't perfect either. Thank you. Back to our story. I was learning the, about the DAP, you know, you learned about the DAP because you hear about all of the guys in uh, Vietnam and the DAP was really a black thing. It wasn't so mm -hmm. much like it was a white, it was a black thing. So anybody who was black wanted to learn the DAP. And so, you know, as I started trying to learn the DAP and I knew some people who were trying to do the DAP, I had a little simple DAP that I learned. I learned the basic DAP. Would you and, say you, you picked it up from uh from someone I, I, directly from Vietnam or like a... Uh, uh, no, actually, I think I probably picked it up. Picked it up. Uh, I, I, now, my, my brother, oldest brother had, he didn't get drafted. He joined the Air Force. But uh, my brother came back. He didn't go to Nam. He was stationed in the Air Force at Guam and Okinawa. So he came back and he taught me some DAP. So I taught Daryl and, and Robbie what I knew, you know, the simple DAP. Really Ricardo learned a simple ones. dap, the everyday dap, if you will. Sometimes we refer to that as level one. But there were more complicated versions that guys from the Vietnam War actually practiced. We were curious, why? What were the differences between the dap that guys at home gave and the dap that a guy may have given if he had served in the war. While we didn't have actual Vietnam vets to talk to, we put this question to Robbie, who had a theory. You say was a, a distinct difference between uh, depth from your older cousins, brothers, friends that were coming home from Vietnam versus folks that did not serve in the military? For yeah. me, the one from the guys that were coming back from Nam had their own. It was very elaborate, usually probably from the boredom of being in the field, but also from the sense that any day, you actually couldn't even, you were kind of acknowledged the person in a very elaborate way, because in five seconds they could be blown away. You don't even, right. they won't even be here. 
you lo the loss of life was so immediate, could be anything, anytime, bugs, disease, snakes, bullets, I mean, anything could take them away. So I found them to be highly insular. When they came home, there was a kind of automatic kind of thing to it, but it was a little bit dead. They weren't really, really, that, I'm, I'm being very general because it wasn't the same, of course, all across the board. Some people's minds were gone and some people were just glad to be home, but they were still in the, I was just in this horrific thing and now I'm here with the refrigerator and people are telling me it's like, glad to see you at home. But to, you know, 14 hours before I was in, uh, I was just watching, you know, people stuff part body parts into a bag to put them on a helicopter. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't forget that shit. Why was it important to you to pass that on to them? Well, because it was a black thing and it, it was a meaningful thing. You know, everybody couldn't do the dap. You know, I mean, white people didn't do the dap. You know, black people had their own thing. They had the dap. And, and it was a, it was an important thing. It, it was, you know, even going to Vietnam. I didn't I didn't try to get out of going to Vietnam. I wanted to, I almost want I did want to go. It's like a badge of honor, a badge of honor to go over there as a black man, serve and come back, a badge of honor to to have know how to do the dap and, and to pass it on to other young brothers. And uh, it was just something that you did. Even as Ricardo regarded dap as an essential cultural practice, it was shunned in Robbie's Catholic school, not unlike how some schools criminalize cultural behaviors today. Like you said in the intro, same shit, different day. That school was our only kind of sanctuary. There were 20 black kids when I started and two when I graduated. Mm. So that shows you the pressure, the downward mm -hmm. pressure on, take all that dap, take those afros, take that language, take those army mm. clothes. We would get in trouble forever, all that shit, right? Wow. Mm. But we were emulating guys returning from the war. Yeah. And a lot of them were coming back and joining the Black Panther Party um, or other you know, street kind of organizations like that. Not so much for, not for criminality, but for political purposes. Yeah. As influential as Ricardo was on Daryl and Robbie's lives, this was the first time that they had come together to discuss their friendship and to give Ricardo his flowers. Daryl described the impact of Ricardo in his life. Y'all, this was made for StoryCorps. Listen to Daryl's reflection. I think Ricardo may not realize how important he was because we really didn't have any exposure to culture, Black culture, or, you know, Black militants or anything like that. That Northwest was a haven, probably an escape for a lot of uh, Blacks. It was a true suburb to me. Ricardo talked about the Vietnam War and, and death. And I want to say this. Do you remember the record, the album, Things Get a Little Easier Once You Understand? Do you remember that, Ricardo? Mm -hmm. About a boy who went to war? A, a boy who was telling his father he wanted to go to war. He got drafted. And the song talks about him going to war and then someone dies in the war. And it's, I sat with on the bed. I remember that, yeah. And I sat on the bed with Robbie right after the Maybe Tomorrow album by the Jackson Five. I listened to, you know, <laughs> Maybe Tomorrow, 
Right. I was sort of in a, you know, I'm in a daze, a dancing daze. And Robbie puts on this heavy song. And it ends up with the person dying or the father hitting him or something happened. And I, I suddenly realized, okay, it's time to wake up. It's time to pay attention. So I began noticing things like there's a big difference between the movies we used to go, we used to go and see. So a, a bunch of us went to see The Dirty Dozen. Do you remember that movie? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking about the old guys. The Dirty Dozen had one star as far as we were concerned, and that was Jim Brown. Jim Brown, yeah. So we That's sat it. in the movie, Rhonda, and watched this movie at the very end. He's doing this great run to put grenades down these canisters, and he gets shot. Mm. He gets shot. And I think all of us cried. Yeah. We just cried because he was such a big, it was such a big thing to have him in the movie. And then he got killed. And we went, what? We all said, you know, at the same time, why did he have to get killed? But then we began thinking about these things that were going on in the community. Why are the, why are the police harder on us? Why do we have to have Soul Brothers signs behind our door during the riots? Why can't we go down to Fannie Mae's? Dad would say, don't walk through an alley at midnight. Why can't we walk through an alley at midnight? As much as death conveyed dignity, pride, and confidence, fear was a recurring theme in this conversation. Fear of getting into a fight with one of the gangs in the neighborhood, fear of doing or saying the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong dude in the wrong part of town, fear of a misstep with a woman, fear of calling someone the wrong word, or violating the unspoken man code in effect in that part of the city. From Daryl's vantage point, the way he made sense of it, this fear stemmed from the frustration of being treated and feeling like a second-class citizen. Remember, at this time in DC, there was a significant Black population, but it was still very much a segregated city in a segregated country. That wasn't lost on them. At the time in junior high, there were five gangs around Sheridan Street. You may have never heard about that, Ron. You had Marlboro 500 and 250 and the controllers. And, and, and you know what saved me? Playing basketball. It's playing basketball at Tacoma Park. I played with all the thugs. This is also a balance, like Ricardo brought that. When he came from Southeast, he explained the different parts of the city. Oh, there's a different code. Mm -hmm. There's a different way of behavior. So you could get in a fight when I was growing up if you called somebody black. If you called somebody a black so-and-so, you were fighting. You were using Negro then or other words. Mm. And then they dropped Negro for black. Mm -hmm. And then if you were called a Negro, then that meant you were some kind of a sellout. And then Negro, okay. Negra, Negress, you know, it just weren't very, it wasn't very difficult to go past to the negative words. But I think there was a lot of violence because people were angry and... Uh, you what were folks be... angry about, as far as you could tell? I think, I think they felt like second-class citizens. I think they felt uncomfortable. And I also think that they were, we were treated badly in the press and in sports and other things. Of course, there were some stars. <clears throat> but there, were always, there was always the subliminal message that you were second or third or less than. Even in commercials, the black guys on the end to the right, right? Yeah, there's the white, there's the blonde in the beginning, or there's the black guy that's such a good friend, he wants the white guy to have a great car, 
great time in his new car. He's going, go, Bob. One day I'll have a Mustang. <laughs> if you he know? was allowed. <laughs> if he right. was allowed. Um, Ricardo, yeah. what do you think about what Daryl said about the fear and, and the anger? And again, these are things that we read about in history books, but it, it definitely takes a different tone to hear it from people who were walking the streets and talking to people who were living and breathing this reality at the time. Yeah, well, fear, um, fear is something that you really didn't want to show, even if you were scared. Um, you know, like I said, when I moved into uh, Southeast, I was, I was scared at first until I learned how to adapt. So when you show fear, people pick up on it, you know, especially guys, uh, and, and they will take advantage of you. You have, you have bullies today, you had bullies then. It, when it comes to bullies, nothing has changed. And bullies like to pick up on fear. They like to uh, take advantage of someone who they feel is a weaker person. And, 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 and this, is what, this is what happens. Uh, and then when you're talking about going into different parts of the city, you go in sometimes with a fear because you hear things about that part of the city. Um, if you allow that fear to get the best of you, then you're in trouble. Now, yeah. I used to work uh, with in doing census surveys and I used to do all different sur census surveys and I, they would send me to all the bad areas of the city. And I couldn't go in those areas with any kind of fear. Not saying that I wasn't a little bit scared uh, because if, you, if you're not scared, then you're crazy, something's wrong with you, crazy or something's wrong with you. you. You should have some fear. You should have some fear so that uh, you know that you need to take precaution about what you're doing so that you're not taking advantage of it. You're, you're not, somebody's not gonna jump, jump on you or something. Now, as I said, I would go to all the bad areas of the city. I never went in those areas showing fear. Um, one thing, um, one is a psalm that I learned as a kid and I, and I remembered it and I always remember it. It's my favorite psalm. It's the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And part of, the, uh, part of that psalm is this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So when I would go through certain areas of the city and, and, and I would see things, and this is what I would say to myself. I would say, I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then I would say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So I would walk through the areas with confidence. You know, when I say, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I was walking in the midst of these people. I was walking right through guys who selling drugs and shooting drugs. And uh, I mean, just some of the stuff that I saw while I was doing surveys. And, um, you know, this, this is just, you know, this is what, this is how it was. This is, this is how, you know, when you're talking about fear too, this is the stuff that makes you afraid. Uh, yeah, when, do, do you feel did that fear ever get validated? Was it? Did you have to? Were you tested from from time to time while you're doing that I was work? Because uh, you know, I would see these guys would see me, and when I had my shirt and tie, they would say, they would make cracks. You know, they're like, "Hey, I, have I seen you before?" And I'm like trying to be kind of kind of mm -hmm. friendly, but at the same time, I don't know these guys. I'm like, yeah. you know, all these drug people. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Maybe you might have. <clears throat> 
and they've been making cracks like, um, you know, you, you five oh, and then then I think, and I'm like, oh well, you remember Hawaii five oh, right? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So they referred to the popo. They're like, mm -hmm. you the five oh, you, you the popo, or they're like, have I seen you downtown? Down at the uh, in in that avenue, that's what they're referring to. Judiciary Square at the courthouse. Like, yeah. Oh no, I took that tie <laughs> off and that white shirt. I had to go. I had to go in these areas looking like the people. You know, yeah. when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You know, you. I, I had to start dressing down. I couldn't go in those areas. Barriers to voting, both formal, like literacy tests, and informal, like intimidation, reinforce the status of second-class citizenship. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is considered one of the most effective pieces of legislation to combat practices and restore the power of the 15th Amendment, which essentially enfranchised Black men. Half a century later, the elections of 2016 and 2020 were arguably the most consequential in our generation, and much has been discussed about Black male voter engagement. With the gift of perspective, how did Ricardo view voter participation? Yeah, I started voting and because I started realizing, okay, well, maybe the vote, maybe my vote is important. Maybe my vote can count, um, but the votes only count if you vote. It's, it's, I didn't find out until um, uh, the last election, you know, after uh, Clinton uh, lost, that how important it was for people to vote. People who don't vote, in essence, are allowing someone to become the president or to be in office because they did not vote. And so that's, you know, uh, that's why they put so much uh, uh, stress, stress so much this time about voting and getting getting out the vote, getting people uh, out there. And, and it was so important that they, they got people to vote. And at the same time, they were trying there, there was that aspect of people trying to keep people from voting on purpose because they knew what was, you know, what the outcome would be. You know, when you, if you don't vote, somebody's going to get it and it might be the wrong person. Daryl and Ricardo are now in their 60s and 70s. And as each decade of their lives pass, they remain close and maintain the bond of their younger years. Daryl explained that their closeness took root in their childhood, as Ricardo and his siblings were among Daryl's many cousins, the few who took real interest in him. Their grandparents, Mimi and Pop, set the example for him of what being a close family meant. Our family has always had a closeness. Uh, I have to go all the way back to uh, Mimi and Pop, my, my grandparents, our grandparents. Um, that's where it kind of started uh, because the family, the family would always get together on every holiday. Uh, they had a big family. It was, it was 10 of them. Everybody was coming over to the house, this little house, this little three bedroom house with one bath on East Capitol Street, everybody would come there. Mimi and Pop, my grandmother and grandfather, both of them could cook. I mean, both of them could cook. That's why I cooked today because, because of my grandfather. He cooked, I would go over there and I, he would cook 
uh, breakfast for uh, you know for me, and he he cooked pork ring and and grits and eggs, and and uh, on Sunday, Mimi and Pop would each each one would cook something different. Well, you know, they might like on a holiday, uh, one of them would cook a turkey, one of them would cook the ham. Uh, Pop would cook those fresh rolls, man. I'm talking. You know why I never got into the fresh rolls? I don't know because some of them, <laughs> yeah, man, those rolls were the bomb. Going to Mimi and Pops was like soul food, the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. For the last year almost, COVID has imposed a moratorium on DAP, where DAP was a way that Black men check in on each other and ask what's good not dapping is actually the better way to stay safe. But how long until guys can safely return to the black man's handshake? You know, 20,000 years of human history says that you come and you bow or you offer something or you touch that person. Mm -hmm. Dap is a kind of social agreement to touch with each other. Men don't mm -hmm. generally hug it out, you know, mm -hmm. unless it's been a real major confrontation. That changed a little bit generationally. There's much more hugging, much more expressions of love, much more. My father didn't say I love you to me until I was like 40. Generationally, I think that this is such an enormous sea change that's put on top of it. I think there's gonna be a new form of it. We will rediscover it because we still need to do that connection. We go back to some kind of elaborate head nod or mm -hmm. you know, whatever, you know, so something will happen because that is our cultural affirmation above and beyond that we're okay because we're not always mm -hmm. okay because we live inside of the pigmentocracy so we could often be at risk in an office in congress in over here over there so we always have to affirm are you okay brother sister are you mm -hmm. are you feeling all right are you can i are you okay walking to your car whatever that is to make sure that that agreement is carried forth that we are making sure that we're checking with each other to see if we're okay and dap is kind of a way mm -hmm. of kind of doing that you know what i mean yeah folks miss it namely damon young who writes i miss dap in an op-ed in the new york times damon get at us and check for the article in the show notes to feel properly greeted by my fellow black man Dep must be exchanged. Many cultures have their customary greetings. The traditional bow in China comes to mind. The Dep is that greeting for us. For me, only for decades, but as we know and have discovered through our Dep project conversations, this gesture has history that is over a century in the making, becoming a part of the DNA of Black men and allows us to be seen, understood, and appreciated. Yeah, I remember watching Denver's video for the first time and how thoughtful it was, how enlightening it was to see elaborate handshakes in Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. Over this past season, we've learned so much about our history, past and present. Without language, one cannot talk to people and understand them. One cannot share their hopes and aspirations grasp their history, appreciate their poetry, or savor their songs. 
Nelson Mandela said that. Death is a language, a full conversation exchanged through a gesture and embrace. When we first introduced the Death Project, Malachi, a recent Princeton University grad, poetically articulated how an entire conversation is condensed into a DAP. To hear that recording, visit our website. If DAP were to become a casualty of COVID, what are we left with? The current pandemic threatens that sacred language. Daryl reflects on DAP withstanding the test of social distancing and having a resurgence in due time, even if it's in an altered state with hand sanitizer on the ready. In reflecting on the quote from Nelson Mandela, I believe that we need that. Without it, our culture, our understanding of one another, the history of who we are, and the magnificent creations that our imaginations produce will fade to white. Every year, one should get a little wiser. As most of our guests have been around our age or a little bit younger, it was quite refreshing to converse with Robbie and Daryl with their extra two or three decades of wisdom. And I use refreshing intentionally because it is rare for me to have the opportunity to converse with men who are not my contemporaries, short of talks with my dad, who is only a couple of years older than Ricardo. My son to father talks are now a bit richer after our interview with Ricardo. I see him more as a man who was just trying his best and less as a father who has to be perfect. The nuances of how different generations carry themselves and show up in the world, specifically as black men, specifically in our nation's capital, shines through in this interview. And their firsthand reflections on how the Vietnam War and its aftermath impacted black culture were bits of knowledge that I never knew I needed. This episode was something of a full circle moment for me. A year ago in March, we managed to interview my baby brother and younger cousin about DAP just before quarantine shut everything down. David, my brother, Darnell, my cousin, have been friends since they were young, have spent countless hours at each other's houses. They're about the same age, mid-30s, so they don't have that older, younger cousin dynamic like Robbie and Ricardo and Daryl, but they definitely learn things from each other. And now, in January 2020, we're closing out this season with interviewing my oldest brothers and cousins, hearing their reflections on DAP. I feel like it's symbolic of how our little project has matured. We began in the present and gradually worked our way back to people who actually learned DAP when it first hit the streets in the era of Black power and the civil rights movement. Maybe we'll even interview a Vietnam vet who was actually there. And a couple things resonated with me in this conversation. That Ricardo rebuffed the notion that cultural pride and patriotism are mutually exclusive when he said it was a badge of honor to serve in Vietnam and to do the DAP. I wonder how many Black men, and to speak inclusively, how many people of color want to enjoy the fullness of an uncomplicated cultural pride and patriotism. Ricardo's comments that his vote didn't matter are not unique. He's not the only one to express this sentiment over time, and I think it deserves a respectful interrogation. While the 2016 election changed his mind and the Georgia runoff 
that will elect the first black senator from Georgia will confirm this truth. I understand he might what he might mean that voting may not change the deeply entrenched systemic racism overnight. Not even may not change, but it won't change that overnight. Their reflections on fear deserve a moment as well. That Daryl said at 60 some years old, fear is a part of every black man's life. Leads me to think that the fear that they felt as young adults never really goes away, even as they get older. You all deserve better, and we as a culture deserve better. This humble podcast is a contribution to creating that just world that we deserve. So, Aaron, did their expressions of fear resonate with you as a Black man? It did. I will say that I don't experience physical threats on a daily basis, but fear is not always rational, not always a result of an actual threat. The fear in my mind is no less real than the knee on the neck of George Floyd or the bullets that override the escalation tactics applied to white folks in similar situations. I believe the fear from centuries of our ancestors being enslaved is in our DNA. We live it without actually living it. This fear makes me think about how the first thing I thought to do when I moved to an affluent neighborhood in DC was to update my driver's license. My first thought because of fear of an evening jog in my hoodie or not, escalated suspicions from my new neighbors or passersby, placing my fate in the driver's seat of the car with the red and blue lights flashing in my face. Is that rational? Maybe all of the lovely Black Lives Matter signs in the yards of my neighbors says no, but the historical and present treatment of Black men from all levels of socioeconomic statuses clearly reminds me that my guard must always be up that is fear. That is real. During our interview, Robbie mentioned friends and acquaintances who served in the Vietnam War and returned home deeply affected, to put it mildly. We would like to highlight an organization that supports Black veterans in building a quality of life, the Black Veterans for Social Justice. From the website, it says, Established in 1979, Black Veterans for Social Justice is a nonprofit, community-based organization servicing veterans, their families, and members of the community. Please find them online at bvsj.org. Black Veterans for Social Justice. And finally, this is our last episode for season two. It has been a joy to explore politics, art, music, and social sector leadership with all of you this season. Thank you to our guests. Y'all are the real MVPs. Thank you also to our favorite listener, my girl, Brandon. And honorable mention goes to my girl, Laurel, who said my voice has gotten sultry. Life goals, girl, life goals. Thank you so much for listening, giving us feedback, and cheering us on. We love y'all for real. Yeah, season two was an amazing ride, and we're planning a powerful season three. Inspired by the visionary approach of the Black National Convention held in August, 
we are challenging our traditional understandings about institutions in our society. Education, economics, voter engagement, the carceral system, immigration, food, and climate justice. Our guests will be Black men who are doing the work to reimagine these institutions. We're learning a lot already in our planning, and we hope you will join us to learn too. Yes, season three will be a true passion project, and we are beyond excited. The DAP project is a two-person team, written, edited, and produced by me. And me. You can chill with me on Instagram at Rhonda Henderson and on Twitter at educate underscore Rhonda. Catch me on IG at Aaron.Stallworth or reach out to the DAP project on Twitter at DAP underscore project. That's DAP underscore project. And of course, we're on the web at thedapproject.com. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Until then, be easy and read good books. Take care, folks. Peace. Peace.